Jesus is King and ruler over all, and we rejoice and we praise his name. Amen. Please remain standing. We will and get out your Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We'll look at verses 9 through 23. If you need a Bible, we do have Bibles available in the foyer. Encourage you to pick one up if you need one there. There's also Bible apps available for your phones and other things if you want to follow along there. 1 Corinthians 9, verses 19 through 23. This is God's word. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ." that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. This is God's word. May add his blessing to the reading of it. You may be seated. And would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we do come here today seeking out your purposes for us. We know, God, that you give us a calling in this life. You've given us a mission. Father, as we look in this passage, as we look in this word, Father, line up our hearts. Line up our hearts with your mission, with your calling. Father, with our purposes in this life. So, Father, that we may be faithful, that your glory may expand. So, Father, give us this vision. Teach us from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you have uh, the solution to everyone's problems, you know, would you provide it? Would you give it to them? There's this old illustration that pastors sometimes have used, um, and I thought it was interesting how it would apply today. But the idea was if, if there was a, a horrible disease which was spreading all around the world and you had the ability to cure it, would you provide that cure to people? And I guess the idea is obviously, yes, you would provide that cure to everybody. I thought it was interesting in light of what's going on in our world now with the pandemic that we're in. You know, we saw over this week 4,000 people dying a day for the, through the week. That's more people than in 9-11. We hear news of, of, church, of hospitals throughout our country, different parts of our country at least, running out of oxygen and having to ration it. And, you know, we may know of people who have been isolating because they've gotten sick. We know people who are quarantining because they've been with somebody who's sick. And we know people who are just alone because they're afraid or there's some health reason why they can't go out. There's consequences with the fear. There's consequences of lockdown. They've affected employment. They've affected emotions in so many ways. And, and that's why when you hear news of a, of a vaccine that comes out, it's brought a lot of hope to uh, people throughout our, our nation and in the world. You know, I know that there's controversy about these things, and I'm not going to get into it, but, you know, what I do think about is my loved ones who have received the vaccine and have, um, you know, now have more hope that they're able to get out and engage with friends and loved ones. They're able to get out into the community. I, I know of healthcare workers who've, who've received that, and now they feel more confidence in doing the work that they love. And indeed, this, this cure 
which is being promised and which is uh, going out, provides a level of hope. What's up? News as, as it was coming out is spread through the world quickly. Well, the vaccine may provide some help for uh, not getting the coronavirus, but what it doesn't deal with is the spiritual problems that plague the human soul. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, only Jesus, can cure the spiritual sickness of sin. And so that's why the Bible, in recognizing that this is the only solution, encourages God's people to, to tell others good news of Jesus Christ. We're, com- we're commanded to tell others about what Jesus has done, what he's accomplished. Now, often we don't do it. You'd think that with news that this good, which um, is the rescue of souls from sin and death, would be good news we'd want to spread, but often we don't. You know, the Bible does speak of heaven and hell. The Bible does speak of a judgment to come. The Bible does speak of consequences of sin in this life, and you'd think that we'd speak more about it, but maybe it's that we're scared to tell people about it sometimes. Maybe it's rejection of others, or maybe it's ridicule, could be being canceled or even persecuted. Sometimes we won't talk about it for those reasons. Maybe we're just too preoccupied with it. We have jobs, we have families that we uh, need to be involved with. Maybe we don't talk about it because we don't know any non-Christians inside of our lives. You know, there's a lot that's going on. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes lives. Faith in Jesus Christ makes a difference inside the lives of God's people. It ought to. It brings from life to death. Because the gospel is life, we should do all that we can to make that known. That's the heart of God in it. We want to see the heart of God in sharing the gospel. I, one of my favorite verses in seeing the heart of God for uh, for his people is in Matthew chapter 9. I love Matthew 9, verse 35 through 42, when we read this. And Jesus went through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, for they, are, they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You know, we see Jesus looking at the harassment, looking at the helplessness of the people in the cities. They don't have faith. They don't have a shepherd. And then the heart of Christ comes out when he says, pray. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting, the first thing he says to do is to pray. Oftentimes, we are the ones who want to act. We are the ones who want to respond. Over this last week, I've been meditating on uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, especially with the things which have happened up in the Capitol and those things. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, I don't have a slide or anything, but it, it says this. First of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. He says, what kind of people? For kings and all who are in high positions, that we, meaning the church, we the church, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. You know, prayer is the thing that even when the Apostle Paul faces, you know, he's talking with the church, helping disciple the church on how do we deal with kings, how do we deal with government issues that we disagree with, 
the first thing he says to do is to pray, and then he says to lead a peaceful and a quiet life. There's a godly dignity that the people of God are called to and called to in this. And it's, you know, with all the anger which is there, all the frustration which is pent up, which comes out in a place like that, we're reminded as a church of Christ, repenting of anger, not resorting to violence. You know, there are due processes and means to take up, that we take up, but it starts and it ends, it, it's throughout the whole time with prayer. It's what he calls us to, the prayer for all people, and praying for leaders inside of it. But if it doesn't go their way, his point is to continue to lead that quiet life, doing what we can to honor the Lord, to be faithful in our callings, be faithful to the thing that the Lord has before us. So Jesus in Matthew uh, chapter 9 talks about praying, praying is the first thing that he does, but, but it's all a reflection of his heart. It's a reflection of his heart for his, his people. Now, if we get to 1 Corinthians, in the connection with this with our passage, we see our passage gives us a model. It gives us a model which reflects Jesus' heart in Matthew chapter 9. It's an example that's set for us by the Apostle Paul. If you remember, the, birth, the book of 1 Corinthians is written to us, it's, a, it's given to us as a letter. It was a letter that was originally written from the Apostle Paul sent to the church in Corinth. They were experiencing a number of challenges, problems, and it's about three years since the church started it, and he's uh, speaking back to them to address these issues. One of the big issues they're facing is a lot of selfishness inside of the church. The context in which we're at right now, there was a group of the Corinthian people who wanted to go back into their old pattern of going to idol, to going to temples, idol temples, and going and eating meals that were there. And there was some connection with the worship, which is also going on there. The Apostle Paul, in, in pointing out some of the problems with that, points out that, that not only is it wrong, which we'll get to in the next few weeks, but it also affects other people. It affects other people in the way they understand their faith, and even weaker people might be led back into the old idolatries which they came out of. In other words, it might lead them backwards. And so the Apostle Paul is spending a lot of 1 Corinthians addressing that selfishness, addressing that self-absorption that they have and helping them see outside themselves to those others that are around them and helping them consider their interests and needs and the need of the gospel. So what does it mean to have a right attitude towards this gospel of Christ? I think the Apostle Paul shows us in this passage. So there's three words I want to focus on today, and the three words are responsibility, relation, relationships, and reward. Responsibility, relationships, and rewards. And we see that as we look through our passage, it kind of structures our understanding of this passage. The first thing we see him talk about is an evangelistic responsibility. Evangelism telling others about Jesus, telling others the good news of Jesus is something which has commanded all of us inside the Bible. Matthew 28, 19 and 20, we see Jesus' commands to his disciples. So this is something that comes to us. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And we all have a different role in life. We have a different calling in life. That's why the first word of this is important. The, the word there is a participle. It's the word go, which is actually the word going. In other words, as you go, make disciples. 
Tell others about Jesus. Do that part which you can do inside of it. Help them to know, as people who are separated from God, that they can have life in Christ. We might invite them to church. We might study the Bible with them. We might share the gospel with them. You know, wherever it is that we are, there's something that we are all commanded to do as part of our Christian life. Verse, and if we go back to 1 Corinthians 9.19, we see how the Apostle Paul adapted that to himself. In 9.19, he says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a slave to all, a servant to all, that I might win more of them. First of all, the thing we see is that the gospel frames his self-concept. He's been forgiven of his sin. He's been brought in the family of God. He truly is free. He's been reconciled with God. And yet he is free. What he says is, I've made myself a slave to all. See, even though he's free from all men, he'll speak of himself regularly as a slave to God. We could look at Romans chapter 6 to see an example of that. He'll talk about, while he's under no obligation to be uh, to any person, he has made himself also a slave to other people. He set aside his rights his privileges, his entitlements in order to help people know Jesus and believe in him. See, Paul is following his own example. He's following the example of Jesus Christ. If you look at Mark chapter 10, verse 45, we read Jesus saying this, even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Here we see Jesus Christ as the ultimate model of servant leadership. Sacrificial leadership, giving himself up for other people. You see his loving leadership, seeking the joy of others, putting their needs highly, and even dying for them. So we see that in his self-concept, but we also see in verse 19, the Apostle Paul's goal to win people to Christ. It's important to know and to note that Paul is not talking about winning an argument but to tell them the gospel so that he can, they can, he can win them to a person. Don't we love to win arguments? I don't know if you've ever been in an argument. Sometimes you want to have a normal civil conversation, and then you realize you, you're disagreeing with them a little bit, and then you really want to press your point, and then if you just go on a little bit farther, then you really want to win your point. If you're a lawyer, you're built to, to you're paid in order to win arguments, right? You know, so, you know, we love arguments, but he doesn't say to win an argument. He says to win them to Christ, to a person. They put their faith in Jesus. In fact, sometimes we don't tell other people because we're too afraid that maybe we wouldn't be able to win an argument if we got into one. But remember what the gospel says is point people to Jesus. Remembering all the time that it's God's sovereign work which would ever bring a person to faith in Christ. So we tell others about Jesus. We show forth his glory we tell others about what he did on the cross. We describe his love and what it's part to be a fellowship with him. We winsomely communicate what Jesus has done. And as God changes that heart, you know, we see that we've been able to be a part of God winning them to himself. How is it that we carry out this responsibility? If this is our responsibility, how is it we do it? Well, we as a church, we have opportunities through the year to engage in evangelism, whether it's in training. We have Share Your Faith workshops. We're endeavoring to have a Billy Graham um, evangelistic outreach in our community where they'll be training to share your faith soon. We 
We have Evangelism Explosion. We have Vacation Bible School. Lord willing, in July, we're going to have Vacation Bible School and a chance to, to share Jesus with little ones. We have mission trips. Lord willing, we'll go to Cherokee. We'll go to uh, Israel. We'll go to um, Senegal this summer, you know, if, if the Lord provides for that. Again, just chances to tell others about Jesus. I was talking to a pastor recently in town, and one thing he says he does is his church arranges meals before every service. Can you imagine this? Breakfast at every church service before the service starts for anybody who wants to come. What he finds is that there's people in the um, community who need food. And, you know, everybody comes. Everybody can come, but especially those who need a meal, they come and they participate in it. You know, just that way of saying, hey, how do we fulfill this responsibility? Wherever we are, whatever chances that we have, we can be great inviters. There's this legend, which just said this is not a biblical story, but it's a story about Jesus after he's died on the cross, after he's gone to heaven, and he's up there, and the angels are marveling at him when he's in heaven. They're looking at his, at his hands, his feet, his side, and they're seeing this, the, the scars, the, 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 the wounds that are there, and, and they're shuddering as they remember his suffering. Gabriel eventually asks a question, and Gabriel asks Jesus, saying, Master, you, you suffered terribly down there. Do they know and do they appreciate the extent of your sacrifice? Jesus says, no, not yet. Right now, only a handful of people in Palestine know. Gabriel says, and what have you done to let everybody else know? Jesus answers, says, I've asked Peter, James, and John, and a few others to spread the news. They'll tell others, and they'll tell others. Until the message spreads over the face of the earth. Gabriel, he knows the nature of human beings, right? So he asks, well, what's your plan B? To which Jesus replies, I have no plan B. There is no alternative strategy. I'm counting on them. So here we are. There still is no other plan. The the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ is God's plan A, and it is his only plan in it. It's his call to you and to me. That's our evangelistic responsibility. Well, as we move on to verses uh, 20 through 22, we see the evangelistic relationship. We need to always be ready to enter into the lives of others. If you look at this passage, it gives just this excellent model for us of evangelism. It's really simple. It's just the ability to relate with others and to, to show the gospel to them as we relate to people. I once heard that when a person becomes a Christian, that they will, you know, if they're not a Christian, they become a Christian. Within 18 months, they will have no Christian friends. It makes it hard to share the gospel if you have no Christian friends or other people, not Christians, you're interacting with. You know, do you have Christian friends, people that you are able to interact with and point them towards some hope? The Apostle Paul, as we're going to see in our passage, he surrounded himself with people who didn't believe. He stayed engaged with them. So he could show them how Jesus will meet their greatest needs, how Jesus will meet them in their challenges of life, and how he reconciles them to God. And so in this way, he shows that Jesus is for everybody. You know, sometimes it can look like Jesus is just for that spiritual crowd, that spiritual group, but it's not for us. Well, it's communicated in the people he interacts with. Jesus is for you. You need Jesus. I'm going to be around you in order to share that hope with you. So there's four groups that he talks about in the passage. He talks about Jews. He talks about those under the law. 
He talks about those without the law, and then he talks about the weak. All these four groups would have been a part of the church there and a part of that community. So the first group that he talks about in verse 20 is the Jews. He says that to the Jews, he has become as a Jew in order to win the Jews. One thing the Apostle Paul worked diligently to do is to remain part of his people group, part of the Jewish people. In fact, one commentator notes that, that there were a number of, of laws associated with false teaching. And the Apostle Paul willingly put himself under those, those laws, those punishments, because he wanted to be seen as a Jewish person. He wanted to be seen as one who wasn't going to abandon, he wasn't going his own way, but he was a Jewish person who had found hope in Jesus Christ. He wouldn't be a separate group. Even though he could find a brand new identity in Jesus Christ, he wanted to stay connected with them so that he could help them become Christians. Romans 11 speaks of his, of his heart for his people. I don't know if you've seen that movie, Hillbilly Elegy. I think it's on Netflix or something. Hillbilly Elegy. It's a story of this, of this kid who grows up in the poor Appalachian Mountains. And, you know, he grows up with all this poverty. And then he ends up, though, just managing to scrape by to get into college. And he goes to law school, becomes a lawyer. His name's J.D. Vance. But then this, the movie ends with him going back and, and his times that he has to go back to his hometown and the poverty and the drugs and, and all the difficulty that was there because, you know, he needed to help them. So he stayed connected with them, even though he could be a highfalutin lawyer, graduate from Yale or something like that, but he still stayed connected because he knew they, he knew they needed help and he knew they needed hope. The Apostle Paul, we see, staying connected with his people. The second group that he speaks to is people who are under the law. This is another reference to the Jewish people, but this focuses on the religious aspect of the Jewish people, not just their ethnic background. You know, convinced of the Old Testament law, trying to find their righteousness in the law of God rather than in Christ, living probably under the guilt and the shame of falling short of that, also living in the pride of it. And he works to, to free these people from this bondage. And so he stays engaged with them, showing that righteousness can only be found in Jesus Christ. But to this group, he says that he has become as one under the law, although he is not under the law. What he's saying here is that, first of all, he knows that his decisions and the way he acts might affect others in the way they perceive the gospel. He doesn't want to put any obstacles out there by scandalous behavior. But yet there were certain things that he wouldn't do. He was not under the Jewish law. He's a Christian now. His righteousness came from Jesus Christ. So he wouldn't require people to do certain things like be circumcised or observe some of the other ceremonial laws of the land. Jesus Christ fulfilled all that. He didn't need to do that. They didn't need to do it either. And so he wouldn't do those things if they compromised the gospel. He'd be very clear that his righteousness came from Christ. But it matters of indifference... He would participate. He would interact with them and not set up obstacles. The third group he speaks to is those not under the law. This is speaking of non-Jewish people, um, Gentiles, Greeks of the time. They don't have the religious rules. They don't have the religious laws of the others. And so when Paul says this, he's making the point that he's not going to make his Jewish customs a part of becoming a Christian. He's making the point that while he's not under the law, though, he says he is under Christ's law. I mean, he's not um, free from the need to behave rightly, but his, his guidance comes from a changed heart, 
comes from the law of Christ, as Christ has fulfilled the law, and really calls us to something high, something great, that it's not just checking off our boxes in order to make sure we do the right things, but it's a law that extends to our neighbor and extends to God, that goes beyond any checkmark attitude in our life, but really a life lived in sacrificial love for others, even sharing the gospel. Some might say, well, now that I'm a Christian, I can do whatever I want, but, but the Apostle Paul says, no, we have a higher law. The higher law is the law of Christ. That's his law that he lives by. The fourth group that he describes here is the weak. By this group, he means uh, people, um, young believers or people who are, who are investigating the Christian faith, but, but they're leaving um, and having a hard time leaving their old superstitious beliefs. We saw in 1 Corinthians 8 how uh, there was a lot of idol worship which would go on in Corinth, and, and these people believed that there was actual gods who were behind those idols. You know, they've been so steeped in um, this idol worship that there was the, the sense that those were actual gods. And, and the Apostle Paul says, you know, I'm not going to set up any obstacles for those who are checking out the faith, who are investigating that. And so Paul makes a point inside of these that he's going to relate with the people around him. If we're going to be faithful uh, to God's call and building his kingdom and, and seeing people be saved, then we will need to be involved with the people around us. There's no place for us to be aloof from them. We need to care. We need to be interested in the things they're interested in, take up their interests. It doesn't mean we, we don't have to adopt sinful behaviors to relate with people. We don't have to change the message of the gospel. The gospel is relevant to all the way it is. You know, we speak to communicate it relevantly because it is relevant to them. But we don't have to change the message. We don't have to be up on all the pop culture aspects of our world in order to connect with people. That's because people have ordinary cares and concerns. We relate with people about the ordinary patterns of life. As we do that, we care about their lives, about their interests, we're able to share the hope that we have that's within us. There's an engagement, a caring that's a part of evangelism, normal relationships where we help people see the hope that's in Jesus. And we want them to see that, that their greatest needs are met in Jesus Christ. Greatest needs is reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of sin, the dealing with guilt and shame, Discovery of, of a purpose, of a calling inside of life. Seeing the value of the human soul. You know, we see that in Jesus. Jesus came to relate with us. You know, we see he's, he's our model in this. As though he was God, he became flesh and he dwelt among us. He didn't, he didn't give up his deity. He didn't sin in order to relate with us. But he cared. He came among us, cared for the sick cared for the guilty, confronted the self-righteous, but pointing all to himself that we might have life in his name. It's a relatable, relevant message to every person in this world. And you never know who's going to be looking for that. I read this uh, testimony from a magazine I get called Table Talk Magazine. It was in the December um, newsletter, so I, I thought I'd share this with you. It's a story about a prisoner named Brett He's in jail, or he's in prison as he tells this story. But he says, some called me the meanest man in Texas. Brett says, I cannot imagine a worse human being than I was before my conversion. 
I grew up with a chip on my shoulder, bounced around from foster homes to orphanages to a juvenile reformatory, and then finally I was sentenced to prison. I was mean, I was hateful, I never smiled. When I first arrived in prison, I quickly saw that you had to be mean to survive. That wouldn't be a problem for me, so I set out to show people just how mean I was. I stayed in constant trouble, getting in fights and refusing to work. Once I attacked a guard with a piece of broken glass. Another time I hit a guard in the mouth with a jagged piece of metal. In 1984, I joined a prison gang. Once that was discovered, I was put in solitary confinement where I stayed for the next 21 years. In 2004, I was in a super seg at this high security unit in Huntsville, Texas. I lived in a cell by myself with only a narrow sheet of plexiglass to see out. I'd gone months without talking to anyone when one day I noticed some guy waving at me from across the run. I quickly jumped out of the way thinking to myself, what is this dude's problem? The next day he was waving at me again. I turned off my light so he couldn't see me. But I was watching him from the darkness of my cell to see what he was about. He stood there for a few minutes and then sat back down on his bunk and started reading his Bible. Okay, he's one of those, I thought to myself. I decided I'd mess with his head the next time he tried to flag me down. Well, the next day, the opportunity presented itself. When he waved at me, I stood there at my window glaring at him. He smiled back at me and started making funny motions with his hand. I realized he was trying to make a sign to communicate with me, so I shook my head and continued to glare at him. Sign language is how inmates in Super Sag communicated, because you couldn't be heard through the solid doors. I saw that he wanted to teach me sign language, so I decided, why not? Over the next few days, he taught me the alphabet. Once I learned the alphabet and could read the words he spelled out, he told me his name and asked me if I was a Christian. I told him no. He held up a small magazine in his hand and asked me if I wanted to read it. It was Table Talk, this Christian magazine. I really didn't want to, but I decided to humor him, so I shot my line under the door. A line is a string with a comb attached to the end of it, and he tied the magazine to it, and I pulled it across the run and under my door. Later that day, I picked up the issue of Table Talk and began to flip through it, then started to read. It was actually really interesting. When I was done, I asked him if he had any more. He did. Then he told me about one of the programs on the local radio station. I started to listen every day. Then I requested a Bible and started reading God's word. I didn't know it at the time, but God was preparing me to come into his kingdom. One day I felt a strange presence in my cell. I felt that everything was going to be okay. Never had I felt that way before. Usually I felt I was doomed. I'd even contemplated suicide before. But now I knew there was light at the end of the tunnel. I got down on my knees and asked the Lord to come into my life. Since that moment when God called me to himself, my life has totally changed. I renounced the gang, and in 2006, I was released from solitary confinement, was placed in a minimum security unit. After the last decade or so, I began taking college courses. I'm now pursuing a master's degree as well as taking Bible courses for several years. I've been accepted by a Christian halfway house and now have a place to go after prison. I've spent 37 years of my life in the justice system, and by God's grace, I am a Christian. I will live my life for Christ each and every day, no matter where I am or what my circumstances are. In all things, I put my trust in Christ. You, know, you never know as you look out there, you know, who is it we can speak to? What relationships can be formed? You see life coming to those who had no life. Talk about evangelistic responsibility, evangelistic relationships. We want to look to evangelistic reward now, and that's especially in verse 23. There's a great joy in seeing people saved. There's a great joy in seeing people come to faith in Christ. Better than anything that we might leave behind. I mean, Paul's leaving behind his entitlements and his privileges. 
even his friendships for a time. He's going to difficult places to see people saved. And then notice what he says in verse 23, that he wants to share with them in the blessings of the gospel. What does it mean he wants to share with them the blessings of the gospel? First of all, it means that anyone who believes in Jesus Christ will be saved. They have eternal life. They have a relationship with God. They are part of the family of God. And now together, we get to share that life together. There is a sharing together of life within the body of Christ. What a joy it is to have fellowship together. It's the joy of being together assembled. It's encouraging. But it also means that he has joy in just seeing them saved and seeing the joy that they have in being saved. There's a theologian and apologist named Norm Geisler. He wrote this article once where he wrote that I had a confession to make. I was a director of a Christian youth organization for three years. I was a pastor for nine years, a Bible college teacher for six years, and all that time I did not witness for Jesus Christ. I scarcely shared my faith one-to-one with other people. And Geisler offered several reasons for this. Uh, he didn't think he had the gift of evangelism. He thought his gifting was in teaching. You know, he looked at the sovereignty of God and thinking that was an excuse not to tell others about Jesus. Um, one time somebody kind of was off-putting towards him who was doing um, evangelism. And so he did something which is called lifestyle evangelism, um, which eventually just meant he didn't share his faith at all. But eventually, Geisler became convinced of the words of a little song. And the song goes like this. It said, lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to say. And just that little song. Lead me to some soul today. Oh, teach me, Lord, just what to pray. That became his prayer. And God began to change his heart inside of it. And one day as he was praying that, he, a girl came up to, from his school and he shared Christ with her and she became a Christian. She later became a missionary. He joined the EE program, the visitation program of his church and, and went um, visited an atheist one day and, and um, asked this atheist, do you mind if we ask you a very serious spiritual question? And it was a conversation which happened after that. This man became a Christian, eventually became a deacon inside of his church. But Geisler said this, he said, the most rewarding experiences I've had in my Christian life have not come from teaching, pastoring, or ministering around the world. They've come from meeting with non-Christians and seeing one after another come to know Christ. See, that's his reward. I mean, that's the most rewarding thing he said. See, remember, the Corinthians, they, they didn't want to do this, right? They didn't want to give up their rights. They didn't want to give up their privileges in order to do that. But they've forgotten the reward, for some of us, God seems so distant, and, and even our, you know, our, our souls can seem so spiritually cold. Maybe part of the reason is, is we're just not engaging lovingly in the lives of others and engaging with them to share Christ with them. There's a sort of dependence that we learn, a sort of need of Christ that we learn when we start to talk to people about spiritual things. We begin to pray, we see our needs. It kind of lights us up. See, Paul here you know, he's a slave. He's made himself a slave to all. The Corinthians on the other side, they seem to be free, but who's the happier of all of them? Who's the one who has less conflict? Who's the one who has more joy in his Christian life? I dare say, as we read 1 Corinthians, we see it's in Paul. A joy that's rooted in Christ. My own experience is no more greater joy than seeing people come to faith in Christ, grabbing hold of spiritual truth, lives coming alive. 
You know, we see brokenness all around us. We see despair around us, you know, when it comes to abuse, depression, despair, shame, and guilt. And, and Jesus came to minister to those things, to take our guilt away, to take our shame away. And when that burden is taken, that should give us a great deal of satisfaction. It's not us who changes lives. Jesus is the one who changes lives. And what a joy and a privilege it is that, that God would use us to, to change someone's life. That God would use us as a ve- vessel to win them to himself. You know, if you're here today, I hope that you know Jesus Christ personally. I hope that you've accepted him as your Lord and Savior and that you have eternal life for yourself. He deals with all those things and he takes guilt, the guilt, objective guilt you have before God away. And that way you have reconciliation with him and you can begin that reconciliation with the people around you and with yourself as well. See, our model in all this is Jesus Christ because you think what he did to win us to God. He, he took responsibility which, for something which wasn't his. He took our sins upon himself as he died on a cross and paid the penalty for them so that we could have our sins taken away from us. He related to us by becoming a man, being tempted as we are, but yet avoiding the stain of sin and became that perfect sacrifice and a high priest we can relate to. And he shows what his reward is. If you look at Hebrews 12 too, the Bible says that Jesus, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. What is his joy? Joy is your salvation. The joy is you becoming part of the people of God. The joy that he has is preparing a bride for himself. Would you have that same joy? We follow Christ in this. Inside of your bulletin, you'll see uh, one of these top 10 cards. If you just take a second and pull that out. You know, we review this periodically, especially as the scripture gives us a chance just to see this chance we have to be praying for the people around us. Sometimes we just don't share our faith because we just aren't thinking about it. We start that in prayer to identify some people around us who need spiritual truth. You know, we just pray that God would open their heart to the gospel, that they see how they can receive Jesus Christ and have their sins forgiven, be reconciled to God and find hope. And so the starting point is just identifying people around us who we can be praying for. And then just asking that God would open up doors, provide opportunities. So take some time today, right now, whatever, this week, write down some names. If you only have one name, just write down one name and pray for that name faithfully. If you can put 10 names, that's even better. But you know, who can you invite to church? It's great to be a great inviter. Who can you invite to watch on the live stream? As you think about what's happening inside of our world, we see a pandemic, which is leaving people uh, more aware of their mortality. We're thinking about death more. Jesus Christ is the way of eternal life. We see isolation and disconnection. Just yesterday, I was listening to a radio story which which was talking about lifelong committed singles. It was a really interesting story. Lifelong committed singles, they were committed, they were never gonna get married. And then they're in these cities, and then all of a sudden, the lockdowns hit and all the silence that was out there. And they couldn't handle it, and they realized just how alone they were. People were realizing these things. What does Jesus Christ do? He brings a family. Adoption brings people in the family of God. You know, right now, there's a lot of uncertainty which is going on, even with events events this last week. You know, who is it that brings hope and eternal life? It's Jesus Christ. You know, we can see the needs that are around us. 
as we're interacting with people around these things, our hope is in Jesus Christ. We point people to the hope that is within us. So as we think about 2021, you know, we pray that it is God who would work in the hearts of people and use us as his vessels to help people know Jesus. Who's that one you can invite? Who's that one you can pray for? Who are they that you can connect with? Let's ask the Lord to give us eyes to see this year. Would you pray with me? Father, we're thankful for your kindness and mercy. We're thankful for Jesus Christ coming into this world. God, that he would take on our sins and that he would uh, show us um, as a human being what godliness looks like and that he would bear our sins. God, thank you, Father, for the joy he had in dying for our sins and giving, giving us life. God, uh, what a treasure we have in Christ. And so, Father, as we look around us, as we look at the people around us and the needs of our community, family, culture, just pray, God, that Jesus Christ would shine brightly in our hearts and through our, our language and through our words and through our behaviors. Father, that we be witnesses for Jesus. Father, help us be faithful in this. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's stand together. Let's sing our...